The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to follow in the Word of God in your own Bible or use the Pew Bible, if you will, to turn to John's Gospel. been studying this Gospel now since the 1st of December, and we're actually going to finish chapter 1, Lord willing. Probably we'll have spent the most time in this chapter of any, and that's because of all the mountain peaks that are given to us to consider the great doctrinal truths. It's literally like mountain climbing in the early part of chapter 1. Now we're moving into that portion that we would call the historical narrative of the ministry of Christ as he's beginning to call disciples to himself. Even the account of that is slightly different, different viewpoint of the same events in the other Gospels. But today I would say without we never demean any passage of God's Word. It's all worthwhile, certainly, and all of great value. But we don't have new new grand doctrine being presented in this last portion of John 1, as much as now the the, uh, enactment of Christ in his historical ministry beginning to mingle with those who will be his disciples. Listen, I'll read beginning at John 135. I'm also going to piece in a little bit from the very end of chapter 2 as well. The next day, John, and this is John the Baptist, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. 
You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then I would take you forward to read this little piece at the very end of chapter 2. We're not skipping what's between. We'll come back to that, I hope, another week. But John two twenty three. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's holy word. I'm sure that many of you have ever taken an art appreciation course or have seen any pictures of great sculptures of the world might be able to picture in your mind's eye the statue of David made by Michelangelo, possibly one of the greatest works, just seemingly perfect works of human sculpture ever done. The story is told that Michelangelo bought the 17-foot-long block of Carrera marble, pure white marble, from a stonecutter's yard. And when he bought it, they had to look around carefully because this large marble block was in the back corner of the yard in a neglected place among the weeds. The reason was that another sculptor named Duccio had owned that piece of stone and had actually planned another work for it, a statue of Hercules. And Duccio had begun to mark out the stone and had even done a little bit of cutting on it in some places to start this particular statue, a completely different statue. But for whatever reason, he abandoned the project. And so that scarred stone was back there at the stone yard where you bought such things and regarded as a wasted block and maybe just laid aside, you know, like the the least saleable used car that nobody's really going to want, so you park it in the back corner. But the genius of Michelangelo came along and saw within that piece of stone something that others didn't see. He saw the young form of David resplendent in his manhood, in a way that people would say, my goodness, as as an artistic portrayal of the human form, let alone honor to this servant of God, it was totally remarkable what was set free from that stone. You You know how to sculpt a David, don't you? You just take everything out of the piece of marble that's not David. I'm sure you all could do that. But it helps if you're Michelangelo and have the skill in your hands. Well, when you come to Jesus Christ to investigate who this remarkable man is, you approach the one who can see within your rough exterior the finished product that he plans to recreate in and through you. He can come to you and form you to be something wonderful that you would not expect or anticipate, something that he makes from people who might look like human castoffs, like Duccio's block of marble. People who think, I'm nothing but the 
you know, the used stock to be put at the back of the yard where nobody will really ever notice me or I'll never be anything that's important. Christ comes and makes such people his saints and does wonderful things with them. Here in John 1.35 and following, we have this simple narrative of how several early disciples of Jesus come to initially trust and follow him. And I love the simplicity of this passage, the way John clearly wove through the passage the words, come and see, come and see, a great invitation to learn of Christ and become his by investigation of faith. We have two distinct episodes here, and each of them are going to be a a main point for me today. First, the approach of Andrew and an unnamed disciple, I'll comment on the unnamed one in a moment, who came and met Jesus, and then Andrew turned and went to Simon, his important brother, important as far as the rest of the the New Testament is concerned. And then we have this other incident with two rather little-known disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel's hardly mentioned at all, and by the way, he is the same man we think who is called Bartholomew on another occasion. People did have more than one name in those times sometimes. And here again, with these two, the words come and see are seen to be important. I challenge you to think about a time when you first met somebody really important to your life, maybe somebody who actually changed your life. A lady played the piano during the offering today, and I remember the day when she walked into a classroom in my high school and I noticed her. I've been noticing her ever since, as a matter of fact. Maybe you can remember the day you met your spouse or the day you met someone who became a wonderful friend or perhaps a teacher whose teaching and instruction and methods kind of changed your life. And it didn't seem perhaps electrifying at first, but you realized into a growing relationship that here was somebody very important. Well, I'm suggesting to you that we look into this passage now. There's been, you know, the name John keeps appearing, and you have to keep track of when it's John the Baptist and when it's the author. But it's not so hard because the author, John, doesn't use his own name when he's in this gospel. Most commentators and experts feel that the one not named who was with Andrew was John. And this was John's first meeting with Jesus himself. He, he's always modest that way. He never points himself out or, or draws attention to himself by name. And we think because of the way this has the, the hand of an eyewitness in it, it would seem clear that it was a good likelihood, also because John and Andrew were, were close companions, that that indeed was John the writer. And Jesus asked of these two men, John and Andrew, what do you want? Natural question. I find it very interesting that what they responded was to say, Master, uh, where are you staying? I I kind of chuckle at that because my picture of them is that they were rather tongue-tied. Maybe they didn't expect to be addressed uh, immediately. And and when Jesus said, what do you want? Uh, 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 Where are you staying? (laughs) The first thing they could think of to say. Not a terribly consequential question, but indicating that they had an interest in going with him and knowing more about him. And, of course, he said, come and see. 
And he invited them and spent time with them, getting to know them. And what they found out, of course, was not the mere incidental thing of of Jesus' address. You know, he didn't have an email address, so he just took took them along to where he was staying. But they found out much more than that. What they found out was something that answered their soul's deepest longing. I love the fact that Christ didn't treat Andrew and John as unwelcome intruders. He didn't say, look, the day's nearly over. Office hours are closing down. Call my secretary in the morning. He said, come and see. You can know me. You can meet me. I'm available. Come and see. And we can know this as well. For I believe Christ treats all of us this way. You come to him in your need to seek him in prayer, to seek him in the word of God. He's not going to put you off. He's going to invite you to come and learn of him. We use that wonderful word of assurance from Matthew as your word of assurance in the service earlier today where he said, come unto me. If you're weary, if you're loaded down, if you're broken, come. Come and approach me. You'll find me eminently approachable. He's inviting people who have honest questions, who maybe even are ready to challenge him and say, well, what are you all about anyway? Or I'm not sure that I know how to believe in you. Come and see. Come and learn what I'm all about. I'm available to you. Well, the first lesson that I think we have in this encounter by John and Andrew with Jesus here, I would word this way, It's the lesson that you can come to meet Christ who knows your future. Isn't that what he revealed to these men as he particularly met Peter? Let's think about Andrew for a minute. A man who had a low profile in the Bible. He's not mentioned a lot, but he's almost always pointed out as the brother of Simon Peter, partner in the fishing business there in the territory of Galilee. He was initially a disciple of John the Baptist, but he listened closely to the one he called master, John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist said, there's somebody greater than me, pay attention to him, behold the Lamb of God, we heard that last time in our lesson, Andrew was listening. And he said to himself, if my master thinks this is a greater person, I better check this out. And it didn't take him very long, apparently, of having exposure to Jesus that he was ready to turn around in a matter of a couple hours, not days and weeks, and go to Simon, his brother, and say a monumental thing. We have found the Messiah, the Christ, the one Israel was expecting from ancient times. That's a tremendous conclusion for a Jewish man to make. I've met the Messiah. And that's what he went and told his brother, Peter. Andrew, as we see him, was always a quiet evangelist, a quiet witness. He always seemed to be bringing other people into the range of contact with Christ. History does tell us some things. Better than some of the apostles, we know a little bit about Andrew's travels after the days of the book of Acts. He clearly went into Britain and was in Scotland. You may know that St. Andrew is regarded as the patron saint of Scotland, and, and his, the, the, the cross of St. Andrew, as it's called, appears on the British flag, actually. But there's pretty good evidence to say that he also went to places like Greece and Russia. 
Andrew was quite a short-term missionary, and not all short-term either. He went to many places introducing others to Christ. But I ask you to think of how important this man is, even though he's not mentioned a lot, and there's not a great round of applause for Andrew in the gospel. If there had not been an Andrew, there would not have been a Peter. Peter, the great early leader of the church, was introduced by this brother of his who was concerned to tell of the one he had met that was so important to him. Peter would have lived out his life. He wouldn't have been Peter. He would have been Simon, the obscure fisherman who you never would have heard about at all as he lived out his life as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee without a brother ready to witness and speak. And I think, therefore, that John 141 proves a simple lesson for us, but an important one. The wide consequences of personal relationship ministry in Christian witness. You can call it a lot of different names, friendship, evangelism, if you want. That's often introduced. Many studies have been done, you know, of why people are in churches, what brought them there, what influenced them to stay there, and so on. And it's, it's pretty humbling stuff to those of us in the ministry because consistently surveys and studies show when people are asked, well, why did you visit this church in the first place or, you know, come to be there and, and stick and, you know, spend time there and now you're part of it? What was it that was the first link? Somewhere near 80% of the time people say a friend or a family member invited me took me, or at the very least, I knew that that's where they went and I wanted to go to. You know, it wasn't the public relations ministry of the church. It wasn't the website. Oh, my goodness, we've got to have a website today, and we have one. But the website didn't bring them, even today, necessarily. It was someone they knew whose witness they trusted, and Andrew You know, I saw this in my own family when I think back. My older sister, I'm second of four in my family. My older sister's five years older. When I was in first grade, my sister, I guess, was in sixth grade, and she was invited to a youth activity, a children's activity at the fundamental church that became our home church. We had never darkened its door. We knew nothing about it. Another girl said, hey, this is going on in the youth group. I think you'd like this. Why don't you come with me? And my sister went. The interesting thing is, as far as I know, this girl kind of dropped out of sight in that church. I don't remember her being there the whole time I grew up in further years in that church. But she invited my sister. And we went. My sister met Christ. And I met Christ. And my parents met Christ. And my younger sister met Christ. And so on. Andrew Evangelism. Someone was the first link. You already know that I'm not much on New Year's resolutions. I don't know what you think about them, but I just find they're things we decide to do and then we don't do. Well, how about a February resolution? Maybe your resolution could be to review, who am I praying for who needs to know Christ? Who in your family circle, your friends, your associates, those you work with, I don't even ask you if there's somebody who needs Christ because I know there is. Who are you praying for? Who are you asking God to give an opportunity that that you could say something simple, not a highly prepared philosophical 
theological presentation, but a simple word. We're having a concert at our church. Would you like to go with me? Hey, you know, I go to a great church, and I wondered if it would be right for you. Would you like to come with me some Sunday? Would you be willing to say to somebody like an Andrew, I've found something that's changed my life, and I can't possibly explain it to you that well in a few words, but I'd love to share it with you. Are you praying for anyone with an Andrew type of prayer that you might be God's link, that they would know Christ? Look what happened as Simon meets Jesus for the first time. Again, an epic meeting, the first meeting between Simon, who would be Peter, and Jesus here. And what does Jesus say? The first thing at least recorded that he says is, oh, so you're Simon. Well, you're not always going to be Simon. You're going to be Peter. Now, this was more meaningful than comes out to you in the English sentence because there's a play on words of the name Simon, which meant a little stone or a small stone, and Cephas, Peter, which means great rock, a strong rock, a foundation stone. Peter, you're a pebble to God now, but you're going to be a foundation stone. Wouldn't that be a strange thing for someone to introduce themselves to you and say, well, I see who you are today, but you're going to be something much more. I I think there's intended to be something here for us in verse 42 where it says Jesus looked at him. I don't know why the text points that out unless possibly I'm going to speculate that it's a foreshadowing of another look that Jesus had at Peter later on in the courtyard of the temple of the high priest when he was being interrogated and Peter was there by a fire betraying him. I never knew the man and we read that epic sentence, Jesus looked at him, looked right through him. He looks at him this time, tells him what he knows about him. I did read the end of John 2 for a reason, because it tells us there that Jesus knew what was in every man and every woman. He knew what was in Peter, what he would become as a work of the grace of God. He knew what he already was, which wasn't actually all that much. Strong guy, hard worker. You know, if uh, you had to call your friends over to help you move, call Peter. He was apparently strong, impulsive. He'd dive in and, and work for you. But he also was always tripping over his own tongue and boldly going places where maybe he shouldn't go, making mistakes. But Jesus knew that. He knew what he was, and he foresaw what he could become and would become the other side of the cross as he, by faith, remade this man by the Holy Spirit into a new creation. I think there's a wonderful assurance for us here. God who provided salvation for us in Jesus Christ knows what he can make us. We don't know it yet. All we see is what we are and what we have been. He sees what we can be. And he comes to us with that knowledge and deals with us with that final product in view. And we read that assurance that he who begins a good work in us will bring it to completion in the final day. It's a great assurance. It comes to all of us. Just as Michelangelo could go to that stone yard and look at the marked up block with cuts and and marks on it that people would say, oh, that's an imperfect thing. I don't want that. 
Christ can come and see us and say, I can make something wonderful for the glory of God out of that. We should learn from Peter's first meeting with Jesus here that our Lord not only calls men and women to himself, but he will make us into whatever he calls and designs for us to be. Now, secondly, another very closely related dimension is this second interview with Philip and Nathaniel, also obscure disciples. But it, it throws a little bit different light on things in saying, you can also trust Christ who knows all of your past. You know, in Peter's case, he was talking about the future. Peter, I know what you're going to be. But now look at the emphasis, how it shifts here, and it's the man's past that is known and understood. And, you know, it's probably a grand thing to meet somebody who who greets you and says, you're going to be something great as I work with you. You think, oh boy, this is great. But it's a little different when someone meets you and says, I know all about you. I know your deepest secrets. I know everything you've ever done that you're ashamed of that you would never tell the pastor or anybody else in this church. Just think, if we were greeting a group of new members and we didn't tell them that this was a requirement of membership, that as we line them up and introduce them to the congregation, there would be a big, we'd put up our big screen, our 10 by 10 foot screen here on the platform. And as I stumbled to try to tell you the, the name of someone joining the church, on the screen, so that you would know who's joining the church, would flash their whole past life especially every aspect of everything they'd ever done that they were ashamed of or that they thought nobody else... What would those new members do? Would they wait around for me to shake their hand? They, you know, those are the closest two exits. They would run for the exits if they saw that every detail of their past that they might be ashamed of was being displayed. Well, here's Philip and Nathaniel. And I love Nathaniel in a way because he's so human, and even in this little exposure. Comes from the town of Cana, which is where we're going to be next week in chapter 2. Cana, where the wedding was that Jesus attended. Not much of a place, just a little village. And, uh, you know, he exposes what a natural human being he is. I, I've lived in different parts of the country, half a dozen different states and locales, and I find this out. Wherever I go, the people that have lived there all their lives would say, why, this place is God's country. And if you're not from here, you aren't somebody. Well, that was Nathaniel. You had to be from Cana to be somebody. And he looked up the road. Believe me, even in that time, I think Nazareth was a bigger place. But Nazareth had a little more mixture. There were a lot of Gentiles there. It wasn't a place, perhaps, that a Jew would think of as being too honorable. And he hears about Jesus from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now imagine it. You've grown up in Lancaster all your life. You lived in Cabbage Hill, okay? Great neighborhood, Cabbage Hill. I know folks here who grew up there. And, and they heard that somebody was from elsewhere, and they said, can anything good come out of Ephrata? Lidditz? Are you kidding me? You know, we all have our little regional prides, don't we? And yet, Jesus didn't count this against Nathaniel. He called him a man with no guile, a man of straight character, a man of honor. He didn't hold that against him. And what he saw about him was that he evidently was an earnest seeker of God who probably studied the Bible, prayed a lot, and he said, you know, Nathaniel, I know you. You're the man I saw under the fig tree there the other day. 
Well, evidently, Nathaniel probably was totally alone that day under the fig tree and thought, how did anybody know I was sitting under the fig tree? How would he know that? And immediately he was struck by the understanding that this was knowledge from God that Jesus had, that he could know that little tiny inconsequential fact about this man he had never met. And he, look what he said to him. Rabbi, you are the son of God. If you know things like that, you are somebody else. Amazing. Calvin comments in his writings on this chapter, in verse 48, he says, we should gather from this passage the useful lesson that even when we are not thinking of Christ, we are being observed by him. Would it amaze you if the Lord somehow could appear to you and, and say, I'm going to pick on somebody who I know will let me pick on her. Nikki, I saw you yesterday. I know you were there. I know what you said. What would you think? What would you think? This is God speaking. And I better walk differently because my God sees me. The Son of God sees into my past and into your past. Jeremiah chapter 1 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He knows you. And in Nathaniel's case, it seems there wasn't any great, dark, guilty secrets that needed exposure here. But how will we react to the knowledge that he does know our past and he still pursues us and still wants to greet us and have us be his disciples? Because if we tell many people in the world, well, come to a God who knows everything about you, every secret thing you've ever done, once again, like I said about the new members, people would run away. They say, well, he's, he's going to be my judge. He's going to condemn me for all that he knows. But you see, the lesson of the gospel is you are called and invited to come and see the person who does know the worst there is about you and still welcomes you to come and meet him because he died for all those things that you would cover up or think nobody knows about. It's not infrequent to have someone come to a Christian counselor or a pastor and and, you know, they're in a low state and things really aren't going well in their life. And they'll say, oh, pastor, you know, I wish I could know that I was forgiven by God. But if you knew what I've done, you would know God cannot forgive me. Well, there are times when I'm not gentle in counseling methodology. You know, the, the commercial on TV where the guy's kind of moping and whining on the counselor's couch and the guy gives him some rough advice and throws the box of tissues and says, tissue, that's me and what I'm about to say. Because I would say to the person who told me that, how dare you think of yourself as such a hard case that God has never met before whatever it is in your life and he cannot forgive. How dare you insult the cross of Jesus Christ? and say your life is somehow the toughest case that God has ever faced, and the cross cannot forgive you. That is insulting to the love of God and his grace shown to us at Calvary. If you think of what Romans 5 says, that while we were still weak and ungodly, while we were still in our sins, then it was Christ died for us. While we were in our sins, while we were assaulting him, disgracing him, 
The Bible says that God knows our sorry past. He knows our redeemed future. And he knows how he's going to bring these two things together. And he did it at the cross. And you can rejoice that this God and Savior loves you in spite of what he knows about you. And that's the note that our text ends on here in a brief conclusion. Verses 50 and 51, Nathaniel is told as this conversation wraps up with him, look, if you think it was something great that I could see you in a private moment when you thought nobody could see you, let me tell you, you're going to see some things that are utterly fantastic, Nathaniel. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That text certainly calls up the dream of Jacob. Do you remember that dream Jacob had in Genesis 28 when he saw a ladder or a stairway into heaven? He was sound asleep, but God gave him this dream, and there were, there were angels ascending and descending, and it seemed to be a reminder that God was with him and God was going to do some great things in Jacob's life and was going to show himself. Well, Jesus said, hey, that dream of Jacob was nothing compared to what you're going to see. Because I am going to reveal to you who God is. And you're going to see glories that you've never guessed at, wonders that you didn't even know existed as you trust in me. Come and see. Come and see, Nathaniel. You know, people of this earth are fond of saying, seeing is believing. And there are some who would hold up their their hand or even their fist towards Christianity and say, seeing is believing. When you show it to me, I'll believe it. Well, Jesus says, believing is seeing. Come to me. Bring me your inquisition. Bring me your hard questions. Bring me your broken up past. Bring me all your doubts and your fears. Come and see. Believing is seeing. And he invites us to be those, once we have seen him by the eyes of faith as our God and Savior, to be those who would be like Andrew, who would invite and be the bridge, perhaps, for others in a lifestyle that says to others, you come and see what I have discovered. Come to Christ in an exploratory, trembling faith and see the wonders of the kingdom of God that await you in knowing him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today, maybe there's someone here who's hearing the invitation of what was given through these individuals a long time ago. Maybe there's somebody who says, well, it's not for me because I'm too messed up. Would you humble that person to come and see? Maybe there's somebody who says, well, I thought I'd check Christianity out and it's not really too alive to me and it's kind of boring actually. Would you invite that one to come and see and learn the wonders of what you're going to reveal through Jesus, the wonderful Lord? Father, make us people who would be Andrew evangelists, praying and inviting and leading others to this wonderful Lord we have met. We thank and praise you for him. Amen.